I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Welcome to my guest. Welcome to you as the listener, as I've started to do more and more often, and I think I will continue to do now that we're in season four, is actually do what I want to do. And that is to start by landing, by making you all breathe with me. So take a big breath in through your nose, wherever you are, and out through your mouth. Two more of those. And as you breathe, just let yourself get present, whether or not you are doing something as you listen or just sitting or lying still. And as I have begun to say a lot when I teach or when I give lectures or workshops or with my guests, this is because being present and having a single focus actually makes us smarter. We're literally incapable of multitasking. It just means we're doing a lot of things badly. So just let yourself shut down any tabs in your brain that are open and just let this be your little treat of presence because you're about to hear an incredible person talk about some really interesting things. And I'm excited to introduce my next guest and I'm excited to be speaking to him because I have had him in mind as a guest for quite some time and the moment finally was right. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce Matthew Williams. He's the founder and CEO of Ionate. And we met a few years ago, actually, when we worked together on raising his profile. And we, I'm going to air quote those, polishing his approach in an area that wasn't naturally part of his comfort zone. And that is public speaking and presenting and being the face of a company. And I love that, actually, I consider Matthew one of those people who shows that stepping out of your comfort zone can actually become one of your strengths. because. These days, he is a polished and accomplished speaker. He's very comfortable in that. He's found his style, but um, I love knowing that this was not part of his comfort zone. So I've since gotten to know him and his powerhouse of a life partner. Uh, It was sort of as as friends, I guess I could say, and we just really clicked. So I thought, I'm launching season four, which is all about the OGs, the original gangsters, the pioneers of discomfort and innovation. And I can't think of anybody else I know who's an inventor doing real stuff in the world. So Matthew is, we're going to say, on the cusp of becoming an OG. So you heard it here first. (laughs) Uh, He's going to change the way we run the power grid. Let's just say that. We'll get into that a little bit more. But he is a systems architect by nature, a mechatronic engineer by education, a design leader and facilitator by passion. And having spent his career in the front seat of global systems engineering companies, Matthew is equipped with a unique insight on how to build the most efficient electrical systems, which if you've been paying attention, maybe you haven't, but our power grids are getting old in places like Europe and the United States. And obviously sustainability and where we get our energy from is increasingly important to our survival and thriving on this planet because we can't continue to run on the type of resources that we've used for power in the past. So this is where people like Matthew come in as super important. So Matthew is originally from Australia, and early on he recognized the technological disconnect between power grids 
and energy transition, basically getting away from fossil fuels. So his mission for the past 10 years has been to tackle this challenge. So not only is he the founder and CEO of Deep Tech Innovator INH, he has founded a few other companies, invented few things by now. But at INH these days, Matthew and his team are building the technology backbone of a productive, decentralized, and decarbonized power system of the future. So it's a pleasure to have you here, Matthew. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Betsy. I feel like with that introduction, we don't need to talk anymore. <laughs> You've introduced me so well, I don't know what else to say. Well, I do know your speech, you know, more or less throughout the years that I've known you. And it's not been that long. It's probably been about three years, four years, pre-pandemic. Sort of pre-pandemic, I, I feel like everyone's an old friend if I've stayed in touch. But we're going to talk today about a lot of things, but particularly around how failing and starting over are actually an essential part of success and how they can take you places that you might have been afraid of, but turn out to be the future, turn out to be the place you need to be. So you know my first question. Take your time to pause and answer this, but what's an uncomfortable moment that shaped who you are and what you do in the world? Yeah, I, I think for me, rather than one particular instance, it's more of a, a, a lifelong struggle almost. You know, I'm quite introverted by nature as, as a very shy child. Um, you know, I remember quite distinctly being probably five or six and going around to a, a friend's house to, for a play date, as, as the Americans would call it, and, and being too shy to thank my friend's mother as we were leaving. Or, you know, when it was lunchtime, I'd have to whisper to my friend, you know, being unable to communicate, even with people that were very safe, knew them within the life. And, and so this is something that was always going to be an issue um, growing up. And, and it's something that's been a consistent focus for me to, to keep developing. I mean, when I was 14, I got my first job. I deliberately got a job in customer service, forcing me to be able to just have those general, hi, how are you today conversations. And it's been constantly building from there throughout my career. Now to the point as, you know, a founder and CEO, being able to lead teams, speak with investors, be on stage in front of hundreds of people. It's not something that is comfortable or natural, but it's something that through hard work, determination, practice that you can get quite good at. Mm. It's such a great illustration of stepping out of your comfort zone and then having it become your greatest strength because you worked at it. And it's, I think probably I spend a lot of time these days in the weight room at my gym and I look around and think, I can tell there are a lot of people here who probably were skinny teenagers or bullied at school and they have worked on themselves. So now they feel strong and they look strong. And it's just, just that way with any skill that any of us are lacking. And we all have our weak spots. But that's a really incredible example of yeah, something that you knew early on mm. was so, so deeply out of your comfort zone, but you worked on it. And would you say actually now, is it part of your comfort zone or is it still uncomfortable or where are you with public speaking and, and being the face of a company? And it's so far from where you started. How comfortable is it now? Uh, I think it depends on the context. I'm, you know, if it's a smaller group of people, you know, a boardroom or, or these sorts of things, and it's speaking about things that I, I know well, then it's reasonably comfortable. You know, there's not a, a huge amount of preparation that, that's needed. But still, if I'm on stage and there's cameras and there's a few hundred people in the audience, you know, I'm, I'm only human. That I think I've, I've not really met anyone, even newscasters that I've, I've spoken with that still get nervous in that kind of live situation. 
Oh, hell yeah. I do so much of this myself and I still get nervous. I just act like I'm not. And I actually have friends who are newscasters who, you know, they they take things that calm them down on a regular basis because they look very polished. But yeah, it's nerve wracking to know millions of people watching you. I just wanted to add. So one of the the little tricks that I found being an engineer by background, being being quite rational, you, you touched on on my partner earlier. So she's a psychologist and, and a neuroscientist. And she was telling me the amygdala, the little brain arm and the physiological response to, to fear, anxiety, and to excitement is the same. And your brain looks to context to figure out whether it should be nervous or excited. So I, I try this, this kind of rational approach of telling myself immediately before on stage, I'm not nervous. This is a great opportunity. I'm excited to do this. Did you call it the brain almond? Yes. The amygdala. That's brilliant because I thought I was the only person who was like the almond, but the brain almond. It takes an Oxford degree to, be, to know how to call it a brain almond. Well done, partner. <laughs> Lutza, she's brilliant. Yeah, it's so true because it's about understanding your brain and engineering a, a, an approach that works for you that actually is very authentic to you. It sounds like you used your engineering brain to help figure out okay, this is how my brain's reacting. This is how my system's reacting. This is how I'll compensate. I love that. And it probably really, a lot of people can probably resonate with that because I don't know very many people who are comfortable being in that space, public speaking, presenting in front of people. Yeah, it's an interesting um, sort of metaphor probably for being an inventor. Like, has inventing things come naturally to you? Is that part of your comfort zone? I, I think so. I mean, I've always been very, very good at the, the scientific skills that it takes to be an engineer. I can write very good code and, and do these types of things. But I found throughout my life that one of my core drivers is how can we do things better? Um, you know, I, I wasn't, I get very frustrated if we're sitting in the corner, it's just we're going to do the same thing and, and make it slightly better and, and iterate on that. And this is really one of the, the reasons why I've, I've had to keep pushing myself is you want to instigate change. You can't be the quiet person in the corner. If you can see how things can be done differently, and I mean like radically differently, proper innovation, you have to be able to communicate that to people so they understand. But you, the, the kind of, even before that, you have to be able to speak with them because right? it's kind of a threshold point of if you can't even talk to them about it, you're never going to convince them. Yeah, because I initially was thinking, oh, your, your comfort zone is going to be so different from my comfort zone because pff, don't ask me to do mathematics or engineering or anything like that. But actually, it is similar. You have to be able to communicate the problem because we both work on systems quite a lot. Yeah. So let's veer into, this is not your first rodeo. But this is the way with so many people who have become innovators, that there were things that preceded this new technology you've created, that there were some moments of, you know, what you would term at the time, probably failure, but maybe you see them differently now. So let's talk about the discomfort of starting over. And I'll just kind of hand it over to you to talk about when what's the worst thing that can happen happens. Yeah, I mean, it was it was certainly a learning experience to go through, but I think ultimately most people hopefully have a similar experience that when the worst thing that you can imagine happens, right, everything kind of comes crumbling down, but the world doesn't actually end. It, it gives you this resilience of, okay, well, I know if I can get through that, then I know that I can meet all of these, these future challenges. 
So, so for me, it was a previous tech startup. I'd, I'd come from an engineering background. So I've been working in energy transition and, and how the system needs to look into the future and getting us a, a technology pathway to be able to achieve that, which hasn't really existed, which, you know, we can, we can touch on more later. But I'd started with, uh, got this new idea. I, I did the research. I wrote some patents, but I didn't know how to go from doing that to doing a startup raising money, finding customers. I'd never been through that process. So as part of a, 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 a group of founders, we built that business and ultimately it, it didn't succeed. You know? And that was really, really difficult. And I remember sitting at, at the dining room table, uh, you know, the, the day or two afterwards and going, take, again, back to this rational approach of, well, why, why didn't it work? What, what went wrong? Was it the opportunity wasn't there. Was it the timing was wrong? Was it the technology? And made the decision that, no, I still feel like I've got a lot of value to add, that the energy transition needs this type of innovation. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to do what I've been able to achieve with INAT, not having gone through that process. Mm -hmm. I guess almost firsthand learned what not to do in, in an essence. And, and this time being able to really steer the company, lead it as, as the CEO uh, and, and run it in a way that, that works for me, but is also seeming to resonate really well with investors and customers. Mm, and that can actually make the most of what you're bringing to the world with this new technology and also who you are. So you're doing it in a very authentic way because you learned what inauthentic was for you. And that's a really yeah. important thing. It's, it's almost a privilege to be able to, I mean, there's a lot of hard work and risk taking behind it and discomfort like we're talking about today. But it's, it's kind of a privilege to be able to work within a business and ensure that, you know, that it works for me, but also that it's working for everyone else. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in giving people all of the opportunity to grow and, and bringing people into our team and uh, the, on potential and, and what they can bring. Because I've always found if you surround yourself with, with great people, then great things are going to happen. Mm. And also there's an element, isn't there? Because I do a lot of trainings on leadership and management, obviously. But there's, a lot, there's an element of bringing in great people and then stepping back and letting them do things in the way they do them, which might not be the way you do them. And diversity, true diversity of perspective and thought is deeply uncomfortable because it means you've brought in people who don't see the world the way you do, don't have the same skill sets, don't have the same approach. But ultimately, that's the way you come up with a well-rounded, sustainable one that can tackle some things as complex as creating a new energy system. So how do you grapple with the discomfort of being a leader? Maybe it's not uncomfortable for you. Maybe it's so much a part of your values that you're like, it's not really that uncomfortable. But is there discomfort in navigating diversity and diversity of opinion and what the ingredients of innovation essentially for me that's probably more comes naturally and is is in my comfort zone it's kind of i guess one of my superpowers almost of, of being able to do that and and i've found and you've probably had similar experiences you come across people that don't really listen they just wait for their turn to talk and mm. will start talking over each other and interrupting and and it's almost rare, particularly in, in very senior leadership positions, sometimes because dominant personalities rise to that level, to find people that are comfortable sitting back, letting the discussion happen. 
and in an ideal world, world for me, all of this happens without me. If, if, if it can happen without me involved, then I've done my job. I was reading something and it, it was, I wish it were a little less anecdotally written. It was one of those sort of popular articles. I think it was in a reputable source, Harvard something, but it didn't have you know, sort of the research behind it that I need to be able to use it in my work. But it was a, a study of self-made millionaires. And this person had spent three years studying and talking with self-made millionaires. And one of the things that they found was that they had a 5-1 rule in terms of listening and speaking. They listened five times as much as they spoke. So they sat back and they listened. And that's something that I think a lot of people wouldn't really suspect is the case because, you know, you think of leaders as extroverted and charismatic and they're always on the ball and they always have the answer. But actually, the people who've built deeply successful businesses and at which they obviously work very hard know how to listen deeply. And actually, you're right, it's a skill that is often not in our skill set unless we practice it, that deep listening, not just listening, deep listening, listening without an objective to, to speak, right? It's about actually sucking up information that will make you wiser, I guess. Because what's your motivation in sitting back and listening? That's an interesting one. Like, why, why do you listen? What do you get out of it? Uh, well, a couple of things. Uh, I mean, well, as other people are talking, they're teaching you things, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it's an opportunity to gain knowledge, as you said. But I think one of the things is, particularly in startups, but I'm sure this is in everyone's job, is that there's always a lot of work to do. Right? In, and you can, even if you work 10, 15 hours a day, you can only do so much yourself. So you, the only way you can multiply and, and grow and get more done is by letting other people do things as well. So if you try and micromanage, you end up becoming the bottleneck. So I... I always try and let people uh, take on as much responsibility as they can, do as much as they can, find out where their own limits are naturally. And then it all kind of settles into the most productive team that way. Mm. I love that discomfort has led into sort of, it's not even just management, it's good leadership. So let's talk about what you do and how what you do is kind of all about disrupting and changing systems and kind of the world. So Tell us about this technology you've invented and what's the aim of it? I think one of, the, one of the key things is we're bringing lots of different functionality into a single device. So instead of needing four or five different things, which all have you know, inefficiencies and costs and ways that they can break, we can bring it all into a single device that can do multiple things. So you end up having a bit of a, a Swiss army knife that can go in and resolve lots of different problems. So then at a systems level, you then have poles-wise and ionic devices, right? And you don't need the billions of other things laid on top. But in particular, I really see our hardware as an enabler, right? Because if we have this, this new base for the electricity grid that's more flexible, more robust, all of the things like we can get more renewables, we can get more energy storage, we can get more EVs and rooftop solar all integrated into the system. And rather than them being throttled or curtailed or limited in what they can do, we get more of them and we unlock the value that they give. So we end up being this kind of enabler, this multiplier for all of these other technologies that are going to come on top. Mm, because that's another thing people probably aren't aware of, is that there is, it's really, really difficult to feed renewable energy into the current grid, isn't it? it 
because it just can't handle it because yeah. it's old. Yeah, I mean, look, there's there's a number of things. There was there was an article here in the UK a few months ago that the average waiting time for someone that wants to connect a big solar or, or wind farm to the grid can be up to 10 years because <laughs> the utility has to be, because if you connect it and it, it violates a constraint or causes an issue, it can create a, a total blackout. So we have to be sure yeah. that it's not going to cause an issue, but all of the good spots to connect these things, they're already taken. So there's this limit, limitation. And then on the kind of, consumer and you know in your street these sorts of issues the this this is one of the ones that i bring up now and and i think that might be an issue in in a few years time but is not you know really spoken about now is electric vehicles well we're moving towards that Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of talk of well we need the charge points of course we do and we need to have enough wires to get all the energy there and and Vehicles, maybe in the future, they can help support the grid by using their stored energy to go back into the system. But one thing that, that's not really spoken about is harmonics. So for those that, that don't know, sorry, let me get technical for like 30 seconds. <laughs> Explain this. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know what it is. So The yeah. energy we use, right, the AC energy, it's a sine wave. So for, from high school, the, you know, the nice mm. curve. And harmonics is just noise in that wave. So it's like static in an audio signal. And it can cause issues with, you know, inefficiencies and and all sorts of things. But what I think might start to happen is when you plug in an electric vehicle, it introduces noise into the system, right? And so what what at, at a very local level, what if we end up in a situation where someone plugs in their car and those harmonics end up tripping and turning off someone else's car, right? Because this is this instantaneous power control. You know, we've got to worry about energy. Can we get enough renewables into the system? But we've got to worry about things at that nanosecond level as well. It's, I mean, this is why it's one of the biggest challenges because it goes all the way from fundamental physics up to the big regulatory and, and financial markets that, you know, these big power producers operate with it. And it's such a highly regulated industry for good reason because of all of that complexity. So it takes so long to get through the planning permission for, you know, sites to create renewables to then actually hook it into a grid that needs to be able to handle it. And it currently really can't adapt much. This is a lot of the issue with big infrastructure changes, isn't it? The horizon for it is so far away. We don't have that much time. We don't have 10 years to introduce one new technology, we need to be able to introduce all of these at once, which actually, that was a beautiful vision for the future, because now I understand your technology, even though I don't completely understand your technology, but I understand what it's meant to do. And I think that's a really, it, it, you're creating the, the foundation for our grid to be able to adapt and evolve. It's quite reflective of nature. There's an adaptation. There's a mutation almost. You know, it's it feels like a mutation. I'm sorry to put it in like virus terminology, but it's sort of like it's this thing that allows everything else to work without having to change the entire infrastructure right away. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, in a sense. I mean, it's got to we've got to start adding value now, but it's got to be in a way that is what we need it to be in the future. You need this this pathway. You can't invest all of this money today that is of no use in, in five years' time. It's, it's got to be incremental, achievable. I mean, to, to put it into 
a nice kind of round number. National Grid is is the the system operator for the UK. UK is a nice one because it's it's an island, so it's it's kind of encapsulated. They they report on all of their balancing costs because they're, they're responsible for for keeping balance of the whole system. Last year they spent two point six billion on balancing the system, and and that's wow. that's a huge cost. And ultimately, of course, that that gets paid for by in electricity bills. So one of the the enabling kind of features of our technology is how can we help balance the grid from within the grid to try and reduce this cost of of needing balancing and ultimately hopefully leading to lower energy prices for Wow. And that's when it really that's where the rubber meets the road for most people are like, oh, it's going to reduce my energy bills, which I mean Many people around the world are experiencing huge cost of living increases. And in the UK, everything's gone up. They estimate, what, 20% this year? It's humongous cost of living increase, the worst in our generation, for sure. So the idea that you don't have to choose to be cold because you can't afford energy is quite fundamentally comforting. But it, it does make it very personal because I think all of us are experiencing higher costs and thinking, when is this going to end? And actually, the only way it will change, not the only way. There are a few ways it could change, and most of them are related to more carbon-creating sources of energy. And the other is around tech innovations like this. So not only would it decrease our cost of energy, right? It actually would do it in a way that hopefully enables more clean sources of energy that don't kill our planet and therefore us in the process. So it's win-win really win-win or win-win-win, whatever, just keep putting wins on there. You know, we are kind of dorking out here about the energy system and decarbonizing energy supply and stuff, but actually it's just about, don't you want to continue to be able to switch on the light when you want and have it come on? Don't you want to not have, you know, sort of rolling energy blackouts? Like we're seeing increasingly in a lot of places you wouldn't expect them, you know, in the United States, in sort of very quote unquote developed countries where this is becoming more and more of a problem. So. It's really just about how do we actually thrive as a society and how do we keep the lights on and how do we keep ventilators on in hospitals and it's important stuff. So it's good to understand that the system a lot of us just take for granted and probably don't know much about is in need of a major transition. Not only just what, what powers it, you know, sort of getting less dependent on, for example, in Europe, you know, Russian oil and gas or sources that create more problems now than, than solutions in some ways because of the carbon. It's about how do we want to live in the future and how can we live in the future? So that's kind of just framing this whole discussion. You know, we're talking about energy transition and technologies, but it's really important to all of us. I think we all need to get a bit more nerdy about these systems because I think that gives us access to more brains. There's more people who just think, ah, oh, that's not part of my day job, get intrigued by things like, where does your water come from when you turn on the tap? Where does your electricity come from when you want to turn on the lights? I think we might, we might find some really interesting citizen scientists inventing some things. Because who are some of the people who inspired you to do what you do? Like, how did you end up being Matthew Williams, inventor, CEO of Startup? Uh, yeah, as I said, it's a difficult question because I, I don't have, particularly in my field, you know, with, with tech startups and things, a particular single role model that I'm trying to emulate or anything. I'm, I'm kind of more doing this, you know, by being myself and, and, and kind of trying to 
navigate my, my way through this and almost trust my gut, I guess, in, in a sense, in my experience and, and, you know, thought process. But I've, something that shaped me as, as a person is, and whilst it's a cliche answer, is, is my dad, you know, as saying he's, he's uh, growing up, he, he owned a number of businesses, was always very hardworking, but there was one instance in particular because I was in year four in primary school and we had an, uh, an assignment on history. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but I was very frustrated and upset. I didn't know what I was supposed to do and ended up having quite an emotional reaction about it. And he, he sat me down in the bedroom at the little desk doing homework and he said, okay, I understand that this is frustration, you're upset, get it out. Right? But now that we know that, let's figure out what we need to do. what's the next step how do we solve this problem and kind of taking that more less emotional more more rational what can we do and i think that fits very well with with engineering you know particularly university engineers are taught to be problem solvers and it's it's kind of uh been very good for me through my career to be able to no matter what's thrown at us of uh okay now that that's happened what does that mean What's the next steps? What should we do? Look at it from a 40,000 foot view. Go, okay, what's the best thing to do? Let's not stress out. Let's, let's just wasting time, wasting energy. Let's, let's be a bit more kind of rational about this. Oh, I love that. And also how beautiful to have a dad who inspired you in that way. He sat you down and was like, okay, frustration. I hear you. I hold space for that. Now what are we going to do about it? That's actually a brilliant example of good listening and then empowering you, which I love that. Yay, Matthew's dad. Thank you, Mr. Williams. I'm going to make him listen to this and he'll get super embarrassed, I'm sure. I'm sure. Because what does your dad do? Is he also an engineer? No, he's, he's retired now. He had a, a number of businesses um, in telecommunications and uh, all sorts of things. Yeah. Hmm. So an entrepreneur. So you kind of grew up around that, I suppose. That's interesting to know, actually. Yeah, because I think a lot of people are thinking, uh, my one of my my upcoming guests has recently left corporate life to become an entrepreneur, and she's surrounded by people who have always been in corporates and grown up, you know, thinking having a salary and having a safety net and knowing how your life is going to turn out is the way you live your life. So, I imagine that having grown up with a father who owned businesses and was entrepreneurial gave you this lack of fear about starting your own thing, right? It wasn't like the worst thing that could happen or like, oh my God, how am I going to tell my parents I don't have a salary? <laughs> Has that been a factor, do you think, actually? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, maybe. I certainly know when I, when I first graduated, my first job was in, in a larger corporate and I found it frustrating. I, I learned pretty quickly that it didn't really matter how hard I worked or how many hours or how much value I was adding. It was there was no way to get ahead. There was, it, it, it didn't really matter what you did. You were just a, you know, a piece of a bigger machine. And I found that quite frustrating because I wasn't, I mean, I was, you know, young then, straight out of university, but it was impossible to say, hey, what if we did this? Or what if we did that? It was, no, here's the, the checklist. You go through this, this process. And that didn't really fit with, with who I was as a person. I always want to, how can we do things better? Um, so hence going into more of the, the startups and, and having that level of, of control. I think that's a good question to jump off on, which is how, 
How can we do things better? So to anybody listening who's like, okay, I'm not an engineer. I'm not an inventor. I'm not, I don't even think of myself as an innovator. You know, we all kind of are focused on living our lives and surviving and having good relationships, hopefully, but kind of popping our heads out of that day to day, thinking about what needs to happen in the world, because you do have this systems overview. So do I. It's how we think. It's how we view the world. What does the world need from all of us, but in a way that actually speaks to listeners? What does the world need from them, no matter who they are? What could they do today? I think it. I always think it would be nice if people were just nicer to each other. I mean, that's a very broad statement, but how much nicer would the world be if everyone was just a bit more positive and helped each other out? I mean, society mm-hmm. generally, sometimes it feels like we're moving to this very kind of isolated, you know, there's, there's very little community at times now. And, and I think as humans, this is not my area at all, but as humans, we've kind of evolved in this kind of communal aspect and and the world's not really set up in that way anymore so i mean that i think for a lot of people most people there's times when you miss this kind of interaction it was probably particularly hard during covid when you know everyone was locked away and even if you did have that community you were removed from it even video chats and stuff are, are great but it's not the same Matthew, I think you're highly qualified to talk about this as a human being, but also you articulated that better than some people I know who work in community building, etc. So, okay, I think you've found a new comfort zone. But it's true. Be nicer to each other. It is something you can do at home, outside your door, whether you live alone, whether you live with family or friends. Ah, oh, what would that look like? Because, yeah, I mean, we live in cities and... It's so easy to forget your own humanity and that of others, isn't it? When you live in just heaving metropolises where you're just trying to get somewhere and not bump into too many people or you really, you've had a long day and you just don't want to make eye contact with a stranger, but maybe it's just about smiling at somebody or just saying thank you to somebody for something you don't need to thank them for. And maybe it's about being kinder to the people who are in your direct circle whether that's your kids or your partner or whatever but oh yeah that's the kind of world I want to live in for sure so let's jump back into wherever you want to take this but what excites you about the future because obviously you've probably done a bit of staring into the abyss as have all of us who focus on the future and what's going on around us but what excites you what gives you hope uh look I I'm pretty passionate about what I do that's how I can get up in the morning and, and spend so many hours doing it. Um, I think one of the things that excites me is I've been in this space for about 10 years now. And the conversations that I was first having with, you know, electricity companies back then, you know, literally 2011, 2012 was, sure, things are going to change and, and we'll worry about that in the future. Um, and then over the, I used to have to have conversations with people, talking to them about, you know, convincing that renewables was going to change the energy system and that inertia in the power system was a thing. And so having seen step by step, you know, the, the industry and, and the world start to take notice of this and agree, oh, this is a big challenge. This is fundamentally important. And even as recently as the last six, 12 months, companies, people, other startups, we're all now, there's, there's a real 
pull for innovation. You know, people are starting to realize that this approach of we'll just make this box 1% better or we'll add this here and that, that, that might be good enough for a Band-Aid for now, you know, for the next couple of years, but it doesn't get us to all of these targets and this, this vision that we're, we're sharing for, a, you know, a more clean, you know, green society and that we're going to need to take a level of technology risk in, in the sense of we can never ever, particularly with electricity, such an essential service, we can't risk it, right? We can't, we can't put something in the system that we're not sure of, that hasn't been tested, that might be unreliable. That's a big no-no. But we can't just say, well, we're going to use that because that's what we've done for the last 20 years, right? And this mentality of let's look at things and be more open to new ideas, to innovation, is now we can just start to see the start of that inflection point. And that's, that's pretty exciting, both as someone that wants to solve this problem, but then also as someone in the industry, it, it means that there's less barriers to adoption. You know, there's more opportunity. Things are going to start to move faster and faster. Uh, and we can start having conversations about what the system might look like in 10 or 20 years' time rather than just what are we going to do tomorrow. Mm. It sounds like we're at a point with the energy system, but I would say with lots of systems where it's not an option. You said inertia, but just sit. So you popped up um, because you guys recently got get a funding round and have been very successful. So we're kind of gearing toward the end of the end of the interview here. What's next for Ionate and what's next for you? Now that you have this funding, what, what happens next? Where do you want to go? Yeah, so for, I mean, the, the funding was for the next stage of the business. So we'd been able to take it from, you know, a clean sheet of paper a few years ago, go through, do all the simulations and, and benchtop prototypes. And, and what we're doing now is building the full-scale ones that are going to go into the electricity. So. Over the coming months, we'll be doing all of the, the proper independent testing and we'll be going into real-world trials early next year um, and, and being able to then demonstrate hey, when it's in the real world, this is the value it's starting to unlock. Wow. And I guess what's then the horizon for if that's successful, when it's successful, how does that then start to get integrated into the power grid? You know, sort of, do you have any idea of what that the horizon is for that. How long does that take? Because obviously it needs to be a highly proven technology for them to mess with the, the energy grid. So what happens after that? Uh, for us, one of the, the engineering or business decisions that, that we'd made is to work with, with partners, whether that be on, on manufacturing or expert designers. So, so in this scaling up, in this design process, this isn't, you know, a, a prototype we're building we've we've addressed a lot of these technical and uh, you know safety and reliability issues very early on in in the design process um so there's i, th I think in terms of of scaling up and, and what the limitations going to be it we've helped address some of that already um so it's it's really almost going to be moving to to business as usual quite quickly that's exciting to hear, actually, because, yeah, you think, oh, it's going to take 10 years. No, it's not. And that's possibly one of the most exciting things that this, this technology that will enable clean energy is coming sooner than 
most people would expect it, which is exciting. So then circling kind of back to where we started, you, you are, you're funded now, you're on to the next stage as a business. You have a lot of learning behind you now. So has the worst thing that can happen changed in your estimation? You know, if this all were to go away tomorrow, how are you in a different place than you were before when, you know, your previous startup didn't, didn't go how you thought it would go at the beginning? Um, let's hope it does, it does, that doesn't happen again. I think <laughs> once, once was enough. Um, look, I certainly having gone through that process, um, knowing that, you know, if it, if it all does come tumbling down in, in some way, shape or form, that is not going to be the end of the world at, at a personal level. Um, but again, I, I think that one of the, you can't let fear kind of dictate what you're going to do, right? We've, we've got to keep pushing the boundaries um, and, and focusing more on what's the value we can deliver and, and what's the best way to achieve that rather than just trying not to lose. I think if you try and just minimize the potential to lose, you'll end up losing. Just it'll take longer to get there. Mm, it's also playing small. That reminds me of a post I recently saw on Instagram, which somebody was asking a mindfulness teacher, how do you calm your nervous system so that you can like stop being scared and do things? And she went, I don't, I just do things scared. <laughs> but it sounds like also there's a point where you, you know that the thing that you thought was the worst that can happen can happen and you still survive and you end up in this place of even more success than before. So you sound very confident. That was what I sort of noted is you're like, well, it's probably not going to happen because you've learned your lessons. You're wiser from that experience. And you're less afraid of it. You know, you're not braced for impact. You can just sail on into the future going, it's not going to happen. It's not that bad. Even if it does, let's just keep going. Let's just qualify that with, it's not like we're flying blind and kind of head in the sand of if we don't, if we don't acknowledge bad things, then, you know, they can't happen. Uh, but it's, it's managing that process. It, you know, it, as, as you kind of said, it's, it's not about not being afraid. It's about doing it anyway, but addressing things and thinking about what can we do today to put us in a better position for the future. Yeah, it's both a combination of good engineering brain and set out, you know, planned approach, but also passion for creating change that overcomes any nervousness or fear you might encounter. Because I think if you're listening to this and you're in any field or trying to create change in any way in your life or the life, you know, life around you, you can probably relate to that, that the passion you feel for creating change probably outweighs the nervousness, the fear that you have, and you just keep going anyway. And it actually is quite a nice way to live. Rather than getting bogged down and thinking how bad things are, how things could go wrong, that's a pretty hard way to live. So I would encourage you to join us on this side of the fence, the optimists who are doing stuff. And while we don't get it perfectly right all the time, we plan, we are continue to be optimistic and we surround ourselves with a tribe of people who are heading the same direction, which is how we got to know each other. You know, you, you work with people who align with you and your values and, and what you want to try to do in the world. So is there anything you'd like to leave listeners with as we sort of wrap up anything at all? I'm just going to push this over to you. Look, I mean, I guess things can get overwhelming at times at, at a personal level. And then 
especially when you start looking at these these bigger things you know i'm i'm in energy transition that's that's you know my life that's where i i live and uh when you start looking at such a big problem and you know you can't control what regulators or politicians and and things are going to do um but i i always try and just worry about the things i can control what can i be doing whether it's in my personal life or with my business where we can be adding value um, and, and having conversations about what the future might look like, but what can we be doing now? How can we make things better and, and working towards that rather than just throwing hands up and saying, well, you know, the world is doomed. <laughs> that's, that's not, it's not a very good outlook on life. Yeah, there's somewhere between the world is doomed and I can't do anything. And it's like, okay, well, what, what can I do? What's my skill set? Because if I had to engineer something, I'd be buggered, but I can work with leaders. I can hopefully inspire people by having guests like you on. I can live a life that gives off a very strong energy of like, we can do this. We got this. Yeah, I love that. That's a really good way to leave people because you're doing what you can. You believe that you can and you are. So if you think you can make the world a better place, I bet you you can and I bet you you are. Matthew, it's been a pleasure to connect again. And I'm just so chuffed to know an inventor, somebody like you in the world. And I can't wait to look back on this interview in a couple of years when you're properly like settled in as the OG of this stuff. So once again, you heard it here first, 2022, October 2022. So in October 2024, when things are very different in a good way. <laughs> here we sat. Thanks so much, Betsy. Thank you so much and best of luck. We will definitely keep in touch. Yes. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like The Discomfort Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave me a five-star and written review and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast and for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable.